we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Wherever you find us, whether it's a video on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. You can also find us on major social media platforms where I give you a heads up about upcoming shows and which date and time they will be aired. If you go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com, you can find links to the shows, MP3 files which you can download, or links to your favorite platform like iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and all other major sources. You can find information for upcoming and past talk show appearances as well as new book projects at MarlenePardo.com. You can also purchase books and merchandise there. And you can visit my author page on Amazon at Marlene Pardo Pelliser. Due to popular demand, I'm narrating my True Believer stories that I've collected throughout the years in a new series called Supernatural Storytime. You can find links at SupernaturalStoryTime.com. If you are into classic horror, ghosts, and adventure stories, I narrate some of those at Nightshade Diary. And you can find links at NightshadeDiary.com. If you would like to read noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit the Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. I do want to thank you all for being part of my audience, and I think you are all... Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, Stories of the Supernatural, and the following is the introduction for tonight's guest, which was Rick Osman. Unfortunately, right into the introduction, uh, we had a power failure at his end, and we had to scrub that small portion of the show, which included uh, a little bit of his background. Uh, so let me go ahead and talk about Rick, who was born in Indiana in 1953. Uh, he's worked in the field of advanced optics for defense corporations and government for about 25 years. Now, during that time, he maintained an interest in ancient mysteries, and uh, he also writes a regular feature for Ancient American Magazine entitled Ancient Fortresses of the Ohio Valley. He's uh, written about both accepted archaeology and counterculture traditions, and he's even gone to the point of historical cabals to hide certain history. His first book is The Graves of the Golden Bear, Ancient Fortresses and Monuments of the Ohio Valley, which is now in its second edition, and his next book, The Seer and the Oracle, will be available on Amazon, Kindle, Nook, and print later this year. Now, um, you're going to see at the end of the show where he does make mention of his website, which of course I'm going to have in the credits of the show. But 
Uh, here we are right into the middle of the interview, which is basically when the power caught up with the rest of the show. So, guys, here's that great interview with Rick Osman. show so guys but again, again with the multiple context or multiple meanings dependent upon context uh, amongst the Cherokee you had the seven sacred directions north south east west up down and inward uh, down being the earth that is brown that's the earth um, south being blue which is south and cold usually North being white, which is cold, but also fun and uh, gregarious and uh, uh, all those other good things you want to think about people. West, West is black. West is death. West is evil. West is uh, serpents. Right. This East was... is sunrise. Right. So... East is sunrise. East is red. East is whatever. Um, uh, yellow is skies. Good, good point. Right. Um, so, so, so because what you're saying is like it's almost like clustering the colors, the directions, uh, the mean. You know, in other words, this. Right, and each color also has its attendant numeral. So, my guess is that there, even though there are 86 characters in the Cherokee syllabary today, I think it was originally two groups of 49. Let me ask you something, Rick. When you mentioned, because I'm curious about this, you said that like in that area that you grew up in, you found all these arrowheads. Did you ever get them dated? How how old they were? Well, only by type. There's no there's no laboratory test that can tell you the date of a rock. Okay. Stylistically, mm -hmm. we can tell that uh, say a paleo is you know four thousand seven thousand years old, as an example. Right. A Clovis is eleven thousand. 12,300 years old. Um, Neolithic and uh, wood, you know, the the whole woodlands, and which is a, a crappy denominator, but that's what they call it. Right. Um, and then you have the specialty points like Cahokia, and, and we have a real good idea of that one because we can date the other things that were found in context with the points because they weren't hunting points, they were ceremonial points. And we can date the bones with which they were buried. Um, so yeah, I have I, I've I've done it. I haven't had it done. I've right. stylistically got multiple points of the same type of rock, which I'm mm -hmm. sure because I can put them up next to each other and tell the veins running through the rock. Right. But they are over a period. But they were made over a period in three different styles. Uh, three different styles, four different points over a period of almost 3,000 years, maybe a little more than 3,000. Right. Well, so somebody, somebody was learning how to make points differently mm -hmm. using the same type of stone. Right. And which is where I was going with that, because sometimes, you know, certain settlements, they're used for a period of time and then they're abandoned for whatever reason. But it sounds like this place that you're talking about was kept being used by different, you know, whatever the tribe was or whoever the group of people were. And I know sometimes they shift around, but it kept, they kept using it, in other words, because you're seeing different styles of, of what they were doing there with it. So it 
it sounds like for at least thousands of years, that area that you're talking about was inhabited or used, like you said, whether it was for a gathering place, ceremonies, hunting, uh, uh, basically a, a meeting place. Uh, it sounds and like a signal it, point. And a signal point, exactly. And in other words, it, it converged. It was a convergence there, maybe for different reasons, besides the signal point, which was well, obvious. Right. Well, it, it was a good point to watch the herds and know how they were moving or whatnot, mm -hmm. and and to see, see far enough into the distance to know which parts of the grasslands were ready for the herds to come and eat them. So you could kind of set up a pre-hunting plan. Right. All the plan, um, but they were they were also capable of signaling to at least, like I said, from right here, at right. least seven other places that would potentially have shared in the hunt and the spoils of that hunt. So, so it was it coordinated was hunting effort right. beyond anything that the archaeologists want you to believe that they were capable of doing. Now, let me, because I imagine that they were there pre the introduction of the horse. So what you described, though, is that these herds were so huge that they, they you know, because you always think of these buffalo hunts with the Native Americans on horseback. But if there were such, that, but I'm sure that there was other ways to trap them, or if the their herds were so large, like you said, it was a question of maybe isolating a certain animal, and what either driving it into a trap or just spearing it, or uh... it could have been from the beach. It could have been all those, all the above. Okay. Um, we know what I know about this particular piece of land is that at the bottom of the hill, mm -hmm. uh, half a mile away or so. There was a copse of trees, and we're talking 1805, the earliest map I can find of this area. Okay. There was, a, there was a group of trees just about where this house sits. So that would have been a great place to hide and wait for that one buffalo to come up the right. hill. While the rest grazing exactly. And the one at the bottom of the hill could have been talking to the one at the top of the hill all the time. Exactly. And cutting off the Exactly that. Yeah, that there was, right. That this is the way that that they would coordinate to make it a successful and hunt and safe. Because of course, you know, you're you're always thinking. Ah, that's you know you and you're absolutely right because you never think of this type of coordination for a hunt from people living there, you know, even thousands of years before God. Right. And the other thing is, from, from this spot, which was a great killing zone, and apparently a pretty good place to uh, to butcher them, because I've right. also found knives and scrapers and all the other accoutrements you need to 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 uh, process <laughs> a bison. Right. Um, it's 300 yards from the creek. And, and the creek, in those days, we're talking before the white man dredged out all everything and lowered the water table, mm -hmm. that creek was probably, you know, 40, 50 feet across and, and not flowing swiftly, but flowing. Right. So right. you could have loaded, loaded your processed meats, whether they actually cured them here or not, right. into your canoe, take them down the creek uh, about six and a half, seven miles to the White River, and right on the other side of the White River was a 4,000 to 4,800 person village of Piankashaw. Right. So they probably had hunters out in all directions trying uh -huh. to feed that people. 
That is so interesting. Today, the town that exists there today is luckily maybe 500 people. So Wow. But, yeah, so you can see that, that absolutely, like, you know, I'm not going to lug this thing across, you know, whatever piece of meat. I'm going to put it on my canoe and just float on down back to my village and either disperse it or, you know, or prepare it or whatever the case might be. Uh that makes that, that that shows a level of coordination as far as planning, you know the the. That's Absolutely, a, um, it's not just planning. It's also things like um, um, designation of labor, designation of duties, um, um, division of labor. You've got one person over here trying to feed all these people. You've got this other person over here making clothes for everybody got this other person over here making points so that the hunter can do his job i got a, somebody making canoes it's not all the same person doing everything we want to think that the native americans were um specialists okay but they were generalists with specialties in between in other words a, a brave could do all these things he didn't have to be a fighter right, or was, a hunter right he was cross-trained yeah, he was cross-trained on the absolute must-haves of the community. And and the women were, too. Some women made baskets. Some women made ceramics. Some women cooked. Some women sewed. Some you know, some women farmed because the men weren't very good at it. Probably still aren't unless there's a machine involved. But <laughs> they, like, they don't like farming. They like driving. It's just that simple. But, <laughs> um, but you know what? The, it's It's – and, and it's – I, and, and I'm going to introduce, and you tell me, you know, everybody always thinks, you know, um, as far as technology and advancement, and sometimes, don't get me wrong, I think that one of the hallmarks of of a civilization is to know what we have is good enough and it serves our purpose. You understand? In other words, we don't need to keep going as far as, you know, signaling, you know, in other words, if it's if it's serving the purpose of that group of people whether it's for the hunt, for protection, for communications, for um, maybe reaching out to people that were further away. But there comes a point where if all these things are working and the civilization is flourishing and its needs are being met, I think sometimes that there's nothing wrong with saying this works and let's keep it this way. You know that saying, you know, don't fix it if it ain't broke? Almost like that same mentality uh, Finding new making sealing wax, as the Beatles made it famous. Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier that there was a leader, which I, I'm curious about this. That extended, that covered a huge track of land. Can you talk about yeah. that? That I was unaware of that. That that was very interesting. What you mentioned. Okay, we don't know his name or the, the family name or you know how the dynasty was developed or promulgated. What mm -hmm. we know is that Cahokia was a capital. Right. We know that because of native um, oral traditions, right. their version of history. And we also know a few things about the very early contact people who, who said, oh, look, this over here, this is the capital of whatever they want to call themselves. And mm -hmm. they pointed to Cahokia. And there's a 16 
79, I think it is. I'd have to go research that again, map okay. um, of eastern North America. Because remember, the French had already been here 100 years by then. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shows Cahokia as the capital of pretty much all of eastern North America, extending wow. up into uh, up into Nova Scotia and Quebec, and uh, as far as you are, South Florida, right. even even parts, even down towards the Cato part of Texas. Cato being one of the tribes. Mm-hmm. So this Mississippian political animal that it was right. had political control of most of what is now the United States and parts of Canada. And they had they had influence across parts of the Atlantic. And I'm wow. talking about going south. They had influence in Maya country because they were trading with it. They had influence in central Mexico because they were trading with it. And um, the Spanish, who were who conquered Mexico, quote unquote, mm-hmm. uh, conquered Mexico, heard from the the people there about the riches in Wisconsin and Ohio and New York, okay. and then sent people in that direction. Well, almost none of them survived, but they sent people there. Right. And DeSoto, Hernando de Soto, who well he missed where you're at, but he went through parts of Florida mm-hmm. up into Mississippi. Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, Arkansas, but my contention is he also made it into at least southern Indiana, searching for the Lake of Silver, because he was told to go look for the Lake of Silver by the people of Mexico, (laughs) and they told him where to go look for it, and he believed them at least, Right. but he never did find any silver. What he did find, however, before he was killed, uh, was something in the vicinity of 300 to 350 pounds of river pearls. And that was his only treasure that he gained from his travels in North America before he died. Nobody right. knows where the pearls went. Hmm. Interesting. But that would be a lot of food. Now, having said that, I investigated where would you find that many river pearls. And he, the Chronicle very specifically mentioned black river pearls. Okay. And they know of two places where you can find those in North America. One is in the White River of Arkansas, and the other one is the Wabash River of here in Indiana and Illinois. So my conclusion is he was dead before he got to Arkansas. That's not where he got the pearls. Okay. So he had to have gone then to Wisconsin? Is what you're saying where you got them then? No, Wabash River of Indiana and Illinois. And do, I'm, I'm, do you think... By the time, uh, by the time, well, you're talking here, what, 15th century. Do you think that when he got up into this area, he, oh, because I, from what I understand, Pahokia, they were considered, the people that were considered mound builder, builders, right? Yes. Okay. Well, Pahokia is the largest citizen mound, no, period, anywhere at all. There are some contenders, uh, People believe are bigger, but I'm not even I'm not even sure they're completely males. I think they're modified natural hills. Okay, um, because I I imagine because you always hear that when, for example, from when the when the Spaniards got to Mexico and to the Incas and everything, they saw this gold. In other words, this is what turned like oh, there's we got to find where's more of this stuff. 
and yeah. you know makes you wonder did they send the Spaniards up here into you know into the interior of North America on a wild goose chase or because they knew of something because they had traded with the people here uh, oh they had with the people here for certain now whether they were just trying to get rid of the Spanish right that, right that, that that's a good question and I can't necessarily answer it but remember that the Spanish didn't go into what we call Mexico City alone they went in with 5,000 uh, yeah. consolidated troops of native other native tribes who really hated the Aztecs right right Yes, yeah, that, that's a different thing than sending an exploratory, you know, few men. Yeah, go in there and see what you find. They're totally different. Right. Now, the, Cortez went there with the express purpose of conquering what is now Mexico. Right. Right. And so... Now, the, the, the other thing, when you talk about that, Montezuma, the, the king that he murdered, mm -hmm. uh, Montezuma had in his possession what he called a what we call a scrying mirror you know what scrying yes. is yes like going, you know looking into the future looking off into this mm -hmm. the oracle or terror whatever you want to call it right um the ability to see at a distance but the mirror is just that it's just a mirror right and <laughs> so my contention is he was capable of reading and writing whatever they did with these mirrors and sending and receiving those messages. That's how we knew the Spanish were coming. Okay. Which makes sense. Which yeah, nobody ever addressed how did he know they were coming. He, he addressed them as gods, but how did he know they were coming? Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you think about it, there was that element of surprise that you always think of as missing. Yeah. Because <laughs> they weren't surprised no. at all. The horses no. right and, and it makes you wonder you know and even then even if because you always think you know the 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 you know historically you think of uh here they're they're, they're seeing these three galleons or whatever you know just come in on the water but still that doesn't that doesn't mean anything it's like okay those are really big canoes or whatever um but for them to yeah obviously they were not surprised they just didn't know no, they but the, the idea that Montezuma used line of sight communication is not the most important part of what the Spanish chronicled in their visits with him. At least not in my opinion. And what do you think? My most part is they chronicled him drinking up to 75 shots of, of uh, uh, what you would have to call cocoa. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. A day, yeah. That's God. And it's, uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's hundred proof, but still. That's a lot. It's yeah, it's a lot. Yes, it is. But, uh, but wasn't but that... We have other historians who contend that's how many he served in a day. From earaches to strep tests, there's Clinic at CVS. See a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials. Or see us online with telehealth options. That's healthier made easier. Visit Minute Clinic at CVS today. Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, 
Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Not how many he personally drank. Either way, it's an expensive use of commodities because it was a form of um, currency. Right, because I was going to say, that, wasn't the cocoa only like, you know, the, 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 the royal families or the higher echelons of society had access to cocoa? Is, if, I don't know if I'm correct with that. I, I believe that's probably accurate, at least after it got into North America because it was an expensive, uh, exotic mm-hmm. commodity. Product. Right. Um, but the Maya... It wasn't so much because, well, it, you know, it was from the farm next door. Right. Okay, it was a couple hundred, but still, it wasn't a couple thousand bucks. But well, and but I'll give you an, I'll give you an example. Let's let's put that distance in perspective. Okay. Orlando, Florida, is one mile closer to Managua, Nicaragua, than it is to Chicago, Illinois. Yeah, I know. Isn't that weird when you think of it that way, huh? Wow. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. But you tell that to somebody and to them, Managua or Nicaragua, we're like, that's another continent. That's really far away. Yeah, but it's not. It's not. And and if you were in a canoe, and let's say it's a 100-foot-long canoe, which is pretty much what most of the Maya used, mm-hmm. and that's what the, what the Caribs used and when they were meeting uh, Columbus out in the middle of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um and you put 20 men in that canoe and say a thousand pound of whatever commodity you want to move and you leave the, pen, the, the peninsula down there at the Yucatan right. and 18 days later you pull in at St. Louis. Right. Yes. So with all the cocoa that we're finding in all these ceramics, uh-huh. I, I shouldn't say we, I'm just relating the tale. Right. But all this cocoa, uh, and it's all within probably a hundred, 200 year period. Okay. Um, so for a couple hundred years, we think there was this very reliable, very regular trade network. Yes. Where all of every um, vessels, and I'm not talking about the canoes. I'm talking about the ceramic vessels that held this stuff. Right. Were the female. And it, to me, it's like saying this little female-shaped glass bottle with a slightly green tint and this really dark liquid in it that mm. we know is Coca-Cola. Right, but we know that we know that bottle is Coca Cola, mm-hmm. and that's what the ceramics were. They were branded and marketed. Wow. In other words, and yeah, that was like everybody wanted some of that. So, like whatever we're producing, yeah, we'll trade it for that. Yeah, I, and so my task has become to figure out what they traded for. What what was here that was so valuable that they could bring stuff from. Right. No. I was about to ask you, what was it? I mean, do you know? Do you have come across any information about what what they were exchanging? Or well, it was not exchanging. It was basically it was a it was a it was a transaction. Exchange. Yeah, it, let's call it a commodity exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's in Black River pearls as one example. Right. I think they were playing a type of stone called Indiana Horn Blend, which makes some beautiful projectile points. Okay. Um, I still think that they were trading what is today a threatened species 
and we call it a short bladder pod, but it is a plant that is native to the greater Ohio Valley, but in Indiana, there's about a quarter of an acre left. What? And it just happens. It just happens to be adjacent to what used to be a 15,000-person town. So my guess, and, and it wasn't native to that open plains park. It's actually native to limestone hills, valleys, and whatnot. But it was transplanted there, and because it's not really native to it, it's today only growing next to a gravel road where they use limestone as the gravel. Something about the limestone is the only thing keeping it alive. I do not know that's what That's interesting. That's an interesting. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. As far as this is the only place that we're going to be able to get it from. Yeah. Well, well and, and they also moved it closer to the point of shipping. They moved their growing yes. area to Posey County, Indiana, which is right by the Wabash River. Mm-hmm. It's right near a conjunction of the Wabash River and the Ohio River. Right. So there are a couple dozen known very large archaeological sites around there, one of them being a place called the Slack Farm, which that case is what gave us or what led to the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, NAGPRA. Okay. Because the, um, the people who inherited that farm from their father were not interested in farming, and somebody came along with $10,000 in a backhoe and said, I want to dig up your land. And they got tens of thousands of artifacts. Really? Pre-Columbian and whatnot. That's pretty good guesswork. It wasn't a guess at all. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sure. Because all these graves were laid out in a grid pattern with headstones and writing on the headstones. Never heard about that in history. No, I have not ever heard of that. So this was... uh, how how far back? What, what what were they? What time were they dated back to? Do you know? Um, the, we have limited access to um, materials that we can date, but the consensus, if you want to call it that, is about twelve fifty up to about seventeen hundred. So they died out completely just before white men got here. That's that's quite a while back. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it's also a testimony to there was something there that provided a living for 12 or 15 million people Oh, as a community. Or No, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's. I think that holds true in all civilizations, regardless. When you see a concentration of people over a length of time that stays there and stays there and stays there and grows, and all these things grow around it, whether it's like a burials and, uh, you know, a trade pope, you know, there's got to be something there that keeps them anchored there as far as it being a favorable place for the people. Yeah, agreed. And that's kind of become my passion is trying to figure out exactly what that was. Rick, why do you think that this, I don't, I don't want, why this history about that, this area and the people that were there way, way back is kind of like, kept um, I don't want to well I don't want to say hidden but it's not given a lot of um, recognition historically okay there, there are a couple of things going on here one of them being I mentioned earlier that the holes would appear in the manifest destiny thing right destiny 
itself grew out of right of conquest. Mm-hmm. And, and not the United States conquered the Indians, but because the United States conquered the British, who had conquered the French, who had received most of this from the Pope, and in theory had conquered most of North America. Parts that the Spanish did not. Places like New Orleans, uh, and New Orleans was a French colony, right? But it was it was administered by the Spanish relative of the French king. So in essence, the Spanish acted as regent up until 1803, when Fairweather Lewis signed the papers to buy it. And here's where we get into the real manifest destiny. Let's hear it. Thomas Jefferson knew, because he was an attorney, he knew that what he and the United States was purchasing from France was not the land that made up the Louisiana Territory. Right. What they were purchasing was, and it's eliminated in the treaty itself, in the bill of sale, if you want to call it that. Right. They bought city of New Orleans, mm-hmm. and they bought the right, the exclusive right to trade with the natives who lived in that giant piece of land. Oh. And that's all they were paying. They were not buying the land. Yes. The 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 people of um, particularly New York City at the time, 1830s on up, mm-hmm. and Andrew Jackson, Nashville, Tennessee at, at that particular time in Washington, D.C., uh, he said, I don't care it's ours. Move. Get out of my way. And they, and they moved all the Native Americans by force right. west of the Mississippi. But some of them went voluntarily because well, they just needed to fare better if they did did it voluntarily and left early because that's what they did. Right. They were thousands of people just moving because, well, they knew they didn't really have a choice. But then you take the, the people, the Cherokee, as an example of uh, particularly of Lookout Mountain, uh, which, by the way, the Lookout Mountain Shield is almost 100 miles in diameter. So you don't think of it as one mountain. You think of it as one big area. Okay. Of, of 600 square miles. But anyway, they, the Cherokee people, they not only had towns, they had brick houses in their towns. They had their own newspapers. They had streets. They had paved streets. They had wow. sewers. They had they yeah they had indoor plumbing they had slaves they had pretty much everything you know and when they had a wedding it was usually a white wedding <laughs> remember that the happy color uh huh right um anyway so you had all these people who were their only sin was being the wrong color right they were forced out and their land was taken over by somebody else. Andrew Jackson concentrated very heavily on a 780-acre plot that he thought was riddled with silver veins. It turned out to be wrong. I'm glad he took it the way he did. But um, he went broke pretty much trying to mine out the silver that simply wasn't there. So, anyway. And, and it's really interesting because, you know what, it's I can see like you like what you're stating, that sometimes things pass... You know, when you look at it from, of course, future generations, you, you're you totally ignorant of the nuances of what was really motivating. Just like today, you know, somebody goes 100 years into the future. Well, it depends. You know, sometimes what it looks like 
the actual facts of what happened. There's really so many other things underneath. Just, just uh, history just forgets about it, or it's purposely hidden, or you know that saying: "To the victor go the spoils." No, to the victor goes the ability to write history the way they want, of course. Correct. Yeah. That, that's the reason I quoted Polybius because, well, he's the only eyewitness. All the Carthaginians were dead. <laughs> right. Exactly. So we didn't know this. We never will. Right. There's nobody there to contradict the version that's being put out. Right. Uh, two of the cats we have here are named Hamilcar Barca and Hannibal Barca. Father <laughs> and son. That's funny. That's funny. But yeah, it's it's and and if it's almost like, you know, what they say, if you could have that hot tub time moment that you could actually go back or e even if that participate observe. I think most people would be so surprised when they're actually seeing what was what what the person who was existing at that time, what was happening around them to bring around these changes. And, you know, I want to say what the majority of people living in those times really had no control over it because these decisions were being made either by rulers, kings, governors or, you know, people in charge. And they were just being like, you know, you just had to endure sometimes for the better or the worse, whatever decisions were made or outcomes of wars, etc. But I mean, there's so much more to it that people would say, man, I, I didn't realize that that was really what that was about. Yeah, I, back, uh, let's see, this would have been around 1980. I had a, a younger person ask me, so what were the real causes of the Vietnam War? Said <laughs> money. Yeah. Because that's the cause of almost all the wars. You, you can say it was religion, but yeah. you know, it's a matter of how much money is yeah. going into the offering place this particular religion. Right, right, exactly. And, um, yeah, it's I mean, I was... Oil. Well, it's about the money that oil can bring. Right, well, but, you know, they can't... You know, I, I think what happens is that most populations, majority of people really, all they want to do is be happy. They don't and usually, you know, war for the sake of war. They're, they're not going to buy into it. You have to motivate them as far as another way. And usually you put out something that the general population will say, OK, all right, let's do that. You know, yeah. but uh, but the real the real motivators for doing that or putting that country or those people into war has nothing whatsoever to do with what's given to the population in general to get them on board in other words to go along with it uh, oh agreed but, yeah. and, and going going back again to rome mm -hmm. the people who specialize in disseminating intelligence to the population today we call them mainstream media right they were lying to the people of rome 2000 years ago 2100 years 2400 years ago and they convinced the people, particularly the senators of Rome, to uh, eliminate Carthage from the face of the earth because Carthage wasn't paying enough tribute to Rome, or they weren't doing it fast. Right. And yet, when Carthage was placed under siege, it had a 1,000 1, ship convoy of wheat headed for Rome. Let By the way, they couldn't grow they could not grow wheat in Carthage. 
they had traded for it elsewhere. So elsewhere. obviously. So let me ask something. How did they convince them that they would hold uh, food from the population in Rome? And that's how they convinced them? Oh, we don't have enough to give you because Carthage has not paid? Yeah, that's the basis of it. But it was, it was just pure propaganda. Uh, right, 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 right. That, remember right. that Hannibal had all but surrounded Rome. Right. So it was, uh, and, and and had he attacked, and did it was, it was just like you know when Property Lee had attacked D.C. when he could, mm -hmm. well he didn't know he could. Same thing with him. Right. Their intelligence broke down in just in both cases. Yeah, it always comes down to yeah so, that 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 crucial point, and it's you don't you know and and of course hindsight's yeah. twenty twenty. Yeah. yeah, and like Genghis Khan or the Khans, mm -hmm. the Khans tried to invade Japan two different times. Both times, millennial level tsunamis, <laughs> uh, not tsunamis, uh, typhoons right. brought the fleet into the. <laughs> into Talk the about bad timing, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somebody must have been saying, you know, <laughs> the the uh, whoever the whoever you know, okay, forget the third time's the charm kind of thing. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, we don't have any more wood to build fleets. Yeah, of course. And, but it, that's another thing. We, we come across, uh, I'm digressing here just a little bit. We come across occasionally, every few years, a really nice example of an ancient canoe that is you know, hidden in mud someplace in the river pit. Mm -hmm. There is one on display in a casino in Upper Michigan. Okay. Uh, name of that town it's an indian casino but they have a 36 foot long five foot wide hollowed out hollow log canoe on display or what's left of it you know parts okay. of it rotted in wood. however it is held together by two iron spars that run across the beam iron iron and the canoe itself the wood of the canoe is carbon dated to almost 2,000 years old. Oh, you're kidding me. What? Would it... So how did they get iron bars to run across the beam of that canoe? Yeah. 2,000 years ago. And it was found up in a, uh, a inlet of Lake Michigan. That's way up there. Yeah. That, I, I, I'm just processing that because that's incredible. That is incredible. Yeah, I, I took a couple of pictures of that. And, and I bring that up. I'm segueing here on purpose. I'm bringing that up because in October, uh, I'll be speaking at a the Ancient Artifact Preservation Society conference in Harris, Michigan. Mm -hmm. At the uh, trade, I forget the name of the casino. That it, anyway, there's a casino there. There's only one casino in Harris, Michigan, so that's where it's at. Okay. And... Um, uh, I'm starting to clean up this particular escapade. There are, I think, 15 different speakers. I'd have to count them again. But uh -huh. I'm, I'm the last one. And how did they find uh, this? Was it was it were they digging something? Because that's usually how they come across. But how did they find this? In, in this case, the property owners were out walking the edge of the lake and ran across it on their property. So the, there was no state archaeologist involved. Uh, the the 
the people were not affluent enough to get everything done by themselves, but they right. gathered up enough people to do it mm-hmm. without boat ever disappearing from view. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That and is incredible. So I'm making the case in my, my uh, presentation that some 5,000, 4,000 years ago, it was possible to canoe directly from Isle Royal in, out in the middle of what is now Lake Superior mm-hmm. all the way to Pompey Point, Louisiana, there what was then on the very coast of Louisiana, now mm-hmm. 75 miles for right. Anyway, that you can canoe between those two places without portaging. In other words, you can get a canoe through four inches of water right. and more the entire distance from the upper part of Lake Superior to the Gulf of Mexico. Right. And, 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 and of course, at the right time of year, where, when the weather permits. Okay. That yeah. Is, uh, but the idea that you could do it without a portage is That's incredible. I know. Because I was about to ask you, and, and it makes you wonder, did they have the, the source of iron? Did it come up from the Mississippi? Did it come from Canada? Did it come... You know, we, wow. we don't really have an idea of how to, to determine that. Wow. Um, it is not steel, however. It is, and it's not pig iron. It's actually rendered out fairly clean. So it's, you know, it's not blasphemous iron, but it's not, mm-hmm. you know. Let me ask something, Rick. I'm, and, and, you know, you know, I don't know. It's not necessarily that you have the knowledge, but I'm just going to ask you your opinion on this. Do you think that the theory that some people, archaeologists, whatever, have that there was a lot of ancient civilizations that predates a lot of what we think of as ancient civilizations or the timelines that we're giving them? Uh, yeah, I think there's a whole bunch of holes in most theories. Okay. Um, as an example, we have this site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're it's right. 12,000, 13,000, and the number just keeps growing on when it was started. Right. And then after they got it done, they purposely buried it. And it's <laughs> like, why? <laughs> we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. But we don't even know where those stones came from. Right. We are pretty sure, because of the way they were arranged, that there was once a structure over it. Mm-hmm. 
and that was sometime between the time that the stone columns were erected and the site was buried. But that's about all we really know. We start looking at the glyphs, the images carved into those stones. We we can't even tell what some of those animals and birds are. Right. And there's only one image out of the all, what is it, 13 of them, that has anything that kind of resembles a man, and it only barely resembles a man. Yes. So we don't want to think of that, and that was 13,000 years ago. You know, 7,000 years ago, before 7,000 years before, they credit the ancients of being able to write, and yet clearly they could make plans and build out a stone. Right, which is like, you know, there, there. Some of the theories is that you know, maybe before what they call the Bronze Age, you know, you know, you're, you're seeing timelines that correspond to that, where we're talking intricate uh, buildings and structures and design and engineering, because you got to engineer something before you can actually build it, and you're like, okay. This, you know, you're making it look like these people were running around with furs and, and you know, they were happy they had a fire. But somehow or other, yeah. they're able to think of, you know, and engineer this before they actually build it. Because, you know, these, a lot of these structures, this is not something that you do as you go along. It's not like, okay, well, put that there. We'll put, eh, this had to have been basically uh, designed at some point to either uh, be built a certain way. Uh, uh, some of them are very precise also, the way that they're built or how they're built, the locations, the height, the width. Uh, that you're the like, relationship to one another. Yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. So I'm at the point of, I'm starting to look at what was its function because you don't do some of that, you don't do something that intricate and mm -hmm. expansive um, just well, this is and this is the point that I make back in these, you know, when when manpower was very needed from your population, whatever it was that you did, whether like you said you were a hunter, whether you, you know, if you did any type of farming, even it was on a small scale, uh, or whatever. I mean, manpower was important to the whole community, unless you were like a either a, a very young child. Or a very elderly person so to me whenever you have a community or a town or however many people give up X amount of its manpower for something there had to have been a very good reason for doing that yeah something compelled them to do yes. that whether yes. it was politics or religion or pure economic need or mm -hmm. um, or maybe just because they were smart Yes. And we may well, but, never but know. If, but, but if you, but in the, and I guess the, uh, let's say you had these, maybe you had uh, these guys that were the engineers or builders or whatever that, let's go for the temple idea. Okay, we're going to build a temple. In other words, but you're going to have to pull X amount of manpower out of doing what they would normally do to produce whatever they're producing for this community. And for them to have done that, there had to have been, a, like also, you said, a compelling reason. You're also going to have to make it worth their while. Of course. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. But you have to be guaranteed that, hey, we're not building this temple, but by the end of the winter, we'll all be starving because the guys that we're using to build the temple, uh, that normally we'd be producing what we have, we would eat or the stores, you know, in case of a famine. No, we have nothing because right. they had to have something really, really 
I, I guess my point is it had to be very well thought out. And like you said, very necessary right. on some level, whatever, if it, if it was a metaphysical or a well, practical reason. Yeah, we can look at pretty much any civilization or government or entity mm-hmm. of large people in our history, historical period. Right. And we can see that place we want to go. Uh, you know, it's like uh, um, Louis the Sixteenth and let him eat cake. And, uh, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Cake was a whole lot better than eating nothing. Yeah. And yet it was to cause a revolution. Um, go back to ancient Egypt, okay, barely in the historical period. Uh, 5,000 years ago, somebody decided to call himself a pharaoh and lead the people of Egypt. And he did it so effectively that they built monuments that are still available for us to look at. Well, at least that's the official yeah. line that that's going to be. Wow, but you know what? The most most successful rulers or, or dynasties or whatever, they're smart enough to know that you need to keep your people fed because that's it, you know, no food, everybody dies, you know, at the very least, you know, so. Well, and that's still part of places like the United States Military Academy. It doesn't matter how well they'll fight when they're fed, it's how well they can fight when you're not feeding. Yeah. Because yeah. it suddenly ends. Their ability to fight ends when they die of hunger. <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, well, when, like what you just said right now about the French Revolution, okay, normally... If the populace was being fed, and by this I'm not saying cake, but you know they were getting their bread and whatever, and things are you know going along. But you know that famous quote supposedly by Marie Antoinette that let them eat cake would have been like, huh, okay, well whatever, you know, like oh she's so whatever. But it would never have caused. But when you when you comes out among, you know, people that are starving and their children are starving and people are dying, and then of course you know when people are starving then they're you know, they're, they're very sickly, anything will kill them. Of yeah. course, then the context will blow up and then, then, you know, then we get the French Revolution and all that other stuff and, you know, okay, then it, the mob mentality. But um, when people are being fed and comfortable and things are moving right along, it's a lot more difficult to, um, to incite them. How's that? And that's why I'm saying when all these different civilizations, whatever they were, when they decided to do these monuments, which are huge, and you thinking, man, this took years and so much. I'm thinking for them to have really gotten a portion of their population to be on board with this, they had to have planned, you know, as far as we, we're going to do this, we're going to pull this, and we're going to be taking care of I'm sorry. I'm going to segue on with this because the mound, the monk's mound at Cahokia, right, 135 feet long, 536 feet wide, and 125, 135 feet tall, right, the highest back in history. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we know that there was a pretty large population contributing to the build of this, and and you think, well, this this took a very long time for right. for the build, right, and you'd think that. And in uh, 2006, I believe it was, the state of Illinois, in its eminent wisdom, decided to do some, quote-unquote, emergency repairs to the side of this mound because part of the dirt was sloughing down. It was right. going to just road out. So their version of fixing this was to get an excavator in there and dig it out some more. Oh. Not great archaeology, not great pre- preservation. However, it provided an opportunity to go look at at least part of the interior of this mound structure. Okay. What you know, 
and my good friend Vincent Barrows went and photographed it. He took, I think, 1,130 photographs of this excavation point in the excavator and what they found. And there were pieces of limestone at the very bottom of where they were excavating, and that's why they quit digging there because they did not want to disturb whatever that was. Okay. Uh, it was not bedrock. It was placed there, and some of them were as big as a house uh, in area, not in height. It okay. was that thick, but it it's like, wait a minute. This thing's 20 by 30 and a foot and a half thick, and it was moved here. That's a, um, that's a big load. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they did it without a wheel, according to all the archaeologists. Mm -hmm. um, however, even more amazing to me than that was the mound that was built over that was built in a single seat. Wow. And I know that, I know that because there was no foliage no uh plant materials grew up in any and you can see layers the layers are very distinct in it and yes it was done with baskets but the baskets of different colored soil like it came from some from various places but it all came together in one season so That's how many very, people did that exactly That's um, my point. <laughs> according to what vince figured out and vince is an engineer he figured out how many baskets of earth that would be uh -huh. And how many people it would take to carry, say, you know, uh, right. I think it was 14 and a half million baskets of earth. Um, wow. I get the full report. They're in a binder someplace. But anyway, um, yeah, we figured out it would take about a million and a half people to do it. Uh, absolute lowest number was over a half a million. And that was assuming that the dirt was already there, which right. it was not. <laughs> so it makes you, so, okay, so it makes you wonder how did they do that? <laughs> Well, they brought the dirt in, in canoes from various places. There were, there, there were layers of white and yellow and red and blue and green. Green is very, very clear. Um, uh, just all these different colors. And there's even an orange-looking clay that nobody can identify where it came from. Let me ask him, Rick, because I read, <clears throat> and I don't know if this was maybe around the same time period that you were saying that they, that they kind of like excavated slash were... Uh, maintaining it whatever that they had discovered mm -hmm. what appeared to be a burial pit with sacrificial victims and you know we were talking yeah, earlier it's not in, yeah it's not in that mound it's in mound 72. okay let is, me ask um, um, do you think that because we, you know how we were talking earlier that you know where there was a connection maybe between some of the mines or the aztecs that came and and i was thinking i wonder if I don't want to say it was, you know, what we were talking about trading not only of goods, but of ideas. And it makes you, because they, if I remember correctly, they say usually this happened only under drastic circumstances, drought, famine, you know, something significant was happening. Do you think that this could have been a crossover of religious beliefs between these two civilizations? Uh, considering yeah. because they were known, I do not believe that it was that it was brought intact mm -hmm. because you know, people's populations just rebel at that. Right, exactly, exactly. So South America did to the Spanish imposition of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what I think happened to the to the North American population when the Central American religions were brought up here however right. having said that the, the what they call the hero twins uh, that show up in maya culture mm -hmm. so much maya 
cultural materials, cultural right. remains. Right. They are found in Cahokia. They are found in uh, on the White River of Arkansas. They really? are found down close to you at Crystal River. Um, uh huh. There's a there's a standing stone at Crystal River that many people think depicts the Hero Twins, and I happen to agree with them. However, I don't think it was carved by a true Mayan. I think it was carved by someone who was a wannabe. Right. Um, um, and, and yeah, there are other elements of some of the Mayan religions that show up in North America. Uh, and, of course, you also had the what Scott Walters reported on America Unearthed about the blue clay of Georgia mm-hmm. being used as the Mayan blue pigment. Uh, now that and see that's 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 a real mind bender when you start thinking how large the scope was that these peoples were were basically communicating. I mean, I'm thinking not only ideas. Who knows if they exchanged people, as in intermarriage, or hey, uh, I'm going to spend here a year with you guys. You know, like this is how this information, you know, was exchanged. Just a little bit better, and a lot closer to home for you. Someplace out in the the <laughs> the Everglades. Okay. There is a spot of uh, I don't know a couple hundred square miles, maybe a little more, that has something like eleven thousand miles of canals in it. Okay. And um, it had uh, platform moons, and it had giant buildings made out of cypress trees. So you know some of them still have not rotted. Okay. Um, and and they're very, they were very Mayan. The, <laughs> you also may not know that there are just a few cenotes out in the Everglades. But uh, because of the nature of cenotes, they are also religious mm, symbols for the Maya. And one of the cults, and the Mayas had cults within the overall religion, one of them was the Green Anaconda cult. Okay. And, and there's a green anaconda series of vertebrae, not the entire skeleton, has been found in association with one of these great houses. Really? Like they, they kept their pet dragon there. Which is significant. It, there, yeah. It was like a living embodiment of, like a, ma- well, I don't want to say right, a mascot, but in a way, the representation. Yeah, it was closer to a living god for them because it could eat a person. You yeah. know, we're talking about probably a 25 to 30 foot long snake. Wow. Uh, well, you know what? It's, you know that one of the things that you know that, the you know, they, they believed, you know, that they have those cenotes, which were those pools where they would be, they would, in other words, their belief was that these where they would throw some of these, uh, it was like a doorway into the uh, underworld, in other words, that that's why they would exactly. sacrifice and throw and they would even throw their treasures and everything. And over here in Lake Okeechobee, um, around the turn of the century and a little bit further when more people started farming that area and fishing out of it, they would keep coming up with skulls and skulls and skulls and skulls, which, of course, predated the white man. You know, you know when these fishermen were bringing up in the nets these skulls, they were like, they, they were they're being described as red like pumpkins. There were so many of them. And eventually they were found not to be... Uh, they're talking, you know, natives of the area. And it makes you wonder 
was that an extension of that belief system where bodies of water were the doorway into the underworld? And maybe this is why they put their corpses, their dead in there. I mean, these, in other words, they, these were not people like that, you know, were, were victims of, uh, you know, violence or anything. It was like a burial site for lack of a better word. That's why there's so many of them. Uh, and yeah, they, they're bog burials. Right. Well, and on top of that, also uh, going up the west, or I'm sorry, going up the east coast to, uh, uh, let's see, where would that be? Just just south of Canaveral. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of that development, but they, they were digging out foundations to put in a new housing development out there. And they started running across what they call bog bodies. And these bodies were wrapped in fabric. Uh, it was a, a true woven fabric, uh-huh. and they were so well-preserved in some of them that the brain was intact, even though the C-14 dating said that they were 7,000 years old. Oh, what? Where's this at? Uh, west, uh, east coast of Florida. Um, I is this Melbourne? Melbourne? Um, okay, it's this is... up by Melbourne, yes. It's close to Melbourne. Um Anyway, I gotta look that uh, up, man. That is so. That's incredible. I had. I didn't know that they had unearthed something like that in that area. Oh well, there's a reason you haven't heard about it. Why? The DNA. I think they were Scottish. Holy crap! Oh my God, Rick. See, this is that's that's the part that I think is so interesting. That's what we were talking about. That all of a sudden these things are coming up, and they they throw the whole theory of. Uh, history that the way it's it's totally off it's like okay so this does this closing flies in the face of what's been put out there as history archaeology anthropology whatever you want to call it it's like okay how does that work well yeah how could a scott scotsman come over here and establish a colony seven thousand years ago and that's not normal but well i mean okay well, think about it. Akhenaten's DNA came up as R1B Scottish as well. What? Yes. <laughs> the Pharaoh Akhenaten You're was Scottish. You won't hear about that on the History Channel. I have never. Okay, thank God I'm sitting down here. I've never hadn't heard that. I mean, the most you hear about Akhenaten was that, you know, he was... Uh, monotheist and you know that they kind of try to scrub him off the the historical you know things of the Tutankhamen and then Tutankhamen King Tut and all that but nothing like that right but when when they were doing the DNA of Tutankhamen and Akhenaten and a couple others Mm -hmm. that came up with R1 and the History Channel did not show that. They flashed away from it. But a buddy of mine who is expert at reading the DNA lines like this said, holy crap. And he froze the frame, right. ran it back, froze the frame, and it's R1B. It is, uh, well, Western European slash Scottish slash Northern England. And, and a little bit in Spanish as well now, but, you know, 7,000 years ago, not so much. And it makes you think, like, how does that work? Okay. You know, again, then we come back to the original story is like what civilizations were where, when. I mean. Yeah. That... Well, in, in 1000 B.C., as an example, I said the Scandinavians worked so much, R1B, that they were starting to be because 1000 B.C., they were getting glass beads that were made by the pharaoh's glassmaker. 
the the Scandinavians. The Scandinavians, yes. Uh, uh, how are they doing? Okay, well, the only way you get that is through contact, or I mean, some type of contact. Yeah, it doesn't have to be direct contact, but right. somehow okay. those were traded through a network or something all the way to Scandinavia. And we're talking well up there. We're talking Telemark, Norway, and mm-hmm. up in that. Right, because you always think of, as far as ancient trading routes like the Silk Road, you know, but it's always into Asia. You never think of it as being further west. Uh, right, further south. Yes, exactly. But exactly. Silk, the silk went to Egypt as well. The silk went to Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. The the Turkish silver went to Scandinavia. The only, about the only thing that Scandinavians could trade to the other parts of the world were a dried fish, right? B whale whale oil or fish oil, mm-hmm. and C warriors because they certainly fought as mercenaries for a lot of different kingdoms. And that that has a lot of value, especially if you're in a pinch. Right. They got to bring home a lot of booty. Yeah, of course. Of course. From wherever they were or wherever they raided, they brought home stuff. And that included Chinese silks and mm-hmm. Turkish silver and, and uh, you know, northern northern African slaves, in fact. Right, right. But more importantly, in 1000 A.D., give or take, People in Iceland who originally came, most almost all of them came from either Norway or even earlier from Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, they were of R1B DNA. There is a family in Iceland that has for a thousand years had Native American blood in them. I, I, you know what? And even now, with, they, with the, the, the DNA, you know, that they were saying that they never thought that Neanderthals and modern man had crossbred. And now they're oh, yeah. fine. I, I, I have 3% Neanderthal. I have, <laughs> I was, when I looked at my thing, I was like, there you go. You know, it, yeah, my everybody. point, right. Point being that something that before was as like, no, no, no. They kind of overlapped a little bit in time, but the Neanderthals all died out and there was no, maybe, maybe they had a little bit of contact, but absolutely no, no type of breeding, no, no overlap as far as genetics. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I got news for you. So much for that theory. Well, just one example. I mean, we also have 70% of our DNA that we have no idea what it, what it is, what it does, or where it came from. When we say we're homo sapien, right. we're looking at a 2% of the overall genome. That's That leaves a lot with a big question mark on it. A big question yeah, mark. I, Right. Yes. And, 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 you know, and I'm sure you've always, you know, anthropology, the, the search for the quote unquote missing link, you know, and it's always that missing link somehow always eludes being found. <laughs> you know, yeah. well, and now we have the Denisovian. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and, and product. Yeah. But they, 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 they found, I think in, um, I think they found some, uh, they did some DNA on, I think it was some that they found in Siberia. And again, yeah. they found crossbreeding uh, uh, yeah. between two groups that people didn't believe that they, in other words, they found DNA uh, from basically crossbreeding between one group and the other that didn't previously was believed to have existed. 
Uh, right. But of course, we've only known about that third human species for what? About eight years? Yeah. Well. <laughs> well. Wait, wait. What What about the Flores Islanders, the Homo floriensis? We've known about that for nine years, and and that's an entirely different species. Yes. And they were little. They were only two and a half, three feet tall. Right. Well, and I'm sure you've oh, heard about these uh, these natives. I want to say out of New Zealand and all the islands where they did they they really they did their DNA. Well, some of them had red hair and and light eyes, and and they were they 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 got their DNA, and it shows some type of Celt Celtish or from like and, and in other words, but none of them were in other words they could trace their lineage to that piece of land out i don't want to i don't want to say it's new Ze is it new zealand or around that area and there have been no intermarriage as far as that they knew recently who they belonged to and they did the dna study and they found okay so basically you had celts out here in the south pacific how long ago uh, and um, I believe there was a lady, it was a group, but it was a lady that had been putting the um, the documentary together. And one of the parts of the documentary, she said, was the difficulty she had in getting this told or, you know, or talk about it or like nobody, the th you know, the, the, the powers that be wanted to keep this on a very low profile and kind of poo-pooed yeah. it kind of thing. They don't want anybody to supplant the the legend of the Maori. Right. However, the facts say otherwise. Yeah. Well, if you look at, when you're looking at DNA, I mean, okay, this is not open to interpretation. The sense of it is what it is. At least the part you know what, what it is or that you could trace. And then you have to go back into how did this happen? If supposedly these people were not part of the original stock that populated this part of the world. So how did that work? I don't know. About the same time that they made it to Melbourne, Florida, they made it to New Zealand. Yeah. Well, then we're talking, you know, these are, these are some navigators. Right. In, in, navigate sailor because it's two separate things, mm -hmm. particularly on that kind we're going to, just almost exactly the opposite side of the earth. Yes, yes. And some of these routes are very, very dangerous to navigate. I mean, besides the point, besides the fact of knowing where you're going or hope, you know, are you kind of thinking, but still, and, and it makes you think, of course, not only did they come here like, oh, by accident, it was like that there was repeated trips. In other words, they knew where they were going. And there were also uh, repetitive visitations and trade between, mm -hmm. say, New Zealand and Easter Island. Wow. And, and tales, the, the oral traditions of both places say that. Yes. You got, in, on Easter Island, you have what they call the Rungo Rungo. This is the only written record of anything on Easter Island. The Spanish conquistadors pretty much wiped out everything that the culture knew about itself. Mm-hmm. But this one priest um, preserved what they call Rungo Rungo. It's a series of wooden boards with symbols on it. And okay. Nobody, nobody had ever been able to read these symbols. And along came a guy by the name of Barry Fell, Dr. Barry Fell. He was a marine biologist from your neck of the woods. Well, okay, he taught it at okay. your neck of the woods. And he grew up in New Zealand. 
Okay. So he knew how to speak the Maori languages, and including some of the very old children's songs. Okay. Because he grew up a kid, and he sang their songs with them. Mm-hmm. But when he got a hold of the Rongo Rongo, it was just symbols that had, you know, similarities to symbols that the Maori had used, but they had different sounds associated with them, slightly different sounds. Mm-hmm. And when he finally figured out what each of the sounds were, it was the same songs that he'd grown up with. Wow. It was the story. And all it needs yeah. is somebody just to take a closer look at something. I'm sorry? Hey, all it needs, you would think, is for somebody just to take a closer look at something. In other words, do that comparison. Well, yeah, he, he, yeah, but he was there with a unique set of skills. Um, so, so it takes that. It's not just, you know, opportunity. It's also, oh, no, 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 no. But uh, I think also it also starts with an inquisitive mind. In other words, somebody that's truly going to, like, make the effort and, like, okay, it's, that's not it. Well, then what else could it be? You know, let's go to the next thing. You know, not, like, throw up their hands and go, oh, well, who's going to figure this out? Not me. Forget it. You know, in other words, that person that persists. And, uh, and that's very interesting that something like this and then of course then that opens the door to like what you said as far as that some type of reference point for what was the history of the people that were there you know and yeah that 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 island in and of itself is quite a mystery you know as far as the monuments and the effigies and everything that's on there that's like how did they do all of this i mean that they did it they did it but still uh, and it's a shame. It's a shame that a lot of the, the, the records or whatever, anything that could have pointed to as far as information have is that's it. They're, they're long gone. They've disappeared. Yeah. Well, there's a feeling amongst some of the elders that there are more written records. They just don't know where to look for them. They think they might be under some of those effigies. That would and be. they don't want to. <laughs> yeah, they don't want to dig up the effigies to find out. Yeah, Exactly. It's like, yeah, one thing without the other, but that, oh, who knows? But anyway, Rick, I wanted to thank you so much for spending this time with me today. It has been so fascinating. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of history has to be looked at closer because if some of them is not inaccurate, a lot of it sometimes is like, you know what you said, omitted. In other words, we're going to tell you up to this point, but there's this other part we're not going to include because... Yeah, because we don't want you to think that exactly because it casts a different light i think that's happened more often than what people think in a lot of circumstances and uh then you have to go back and look at who were the people in place at that time that decided well we're going to have history uh this is the way we want it to to be you know and eventually it will become this because we insist on it <laughs> you know yeah and like you said and when everybody that was alive is not around to contradict it there you go well, I, I I enjoy contradicting falsehood, but yeah, but that's what they're betting on. That eventually, it has been a true pleasure. Um, I I would just encourage your listeners if they can make it up to Harris, Michigan, the first weekend well, in October. And I was going to. Uh, I'm going to be. Um, if you want to mention, I know that we, you know, 
if anybody uh, wanted to contact you, they could find you on Facebook. Is that correct? Or is there any other way that for yeah. my podcast listeners that uh, if they wanted to reach out to you, maybe any questions about the books or maybe even uh, finding out if there's any other you know events that you're going to attend? What's your best bet? Facebook? Uh, Facebook is my best bet for that. Uh, I'm also available through um, ancientamerica.com, not ancientamericanmagazine.com, but ancientamerica.com, okay. just info, and I end, up, I end up getting that one. Perfect, perfect. Okay, again, I'll put that in the links, and thank you so much, Rick. It has been under uh, absolutely wonderful, and I wish you the best of luck in all your projects. Thank you very much. I look forward to doing this again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. (laughs) Let me tell you, I wasn't kidding. You know, there's a lot. You know, and it kind of like, you know, there's, there's people out there that history is not their thing. And I understand. I, I personally, I love history. You know, all different. Whether it's recent history, ancient history. You know, I, I, I'm, I've always liked history. And there's other people that don't like history. But in other words, it's not their thing. But I'm thinking to myself, whether you're a history buff or not. I don't know about you, but when it comes to stuff like this, it's like I would. I want to be given accurate history truthful history whatever it turns out to be ugly uh cruel because you know god knows that there was a time when human life did not mean as much despite what a lot of people think where human life did not mean what it does today in other words but but give it to me like like let's hear the truth about that historical period in that place whatever it was good bad ugly that is what was happening I want, I'd rather have that than have a group of people or whoever um, put out a version that is either slanted, either because they want to look like the good guys or, or you know, or, you know, we want it to be this way for generations. And, it, of course, it always serves a purpose to whoever's insisting on that version. It's, you know, otherwise they would just write it out the way it is. I'd rather have the unvarnished truth. And whoever looks good, good, and and whoever looks bad, bad. And um, how about this? You know, like sometimes you look at stories. Uh, you know, you could read a book or you see a movie, and even in the 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 true human character. Let's have these the most interesting characters. Let's say you'll find in a movie or even a miniseries or now God knows and all these is the the person that's not altogether the good guy or not altogether the bad guy. And I'm sure you see that some of the most famous villains are not wholly bad. Sometimes it can be real mm, dirtbags, but then there's, but they're more three-dimensional than that. Uh, Unless, you know, in other words, there's, there's, they're not all bad. They're good. And then, you know, there's people that are more good, but then they, they do bad things also. My point being that, you know, it's naive I think, and to think that we're going to uh, whitewash history because it might be offensive or, you know, no, it's like, you know, you have to lay it bare the way it was. And whoever looks bad, looks bad. And whoever looks good or whoever, whatever it is. And in other words, I guess take out the 
who looks good or who looks bad. You know, like the person trying to take the perfect photographs that that's my best side, you know. No, it, it because things shift around. Um, things, people are motivated in certain periods of time for doing certain things, sometimes out of greed, sometimes expediency. Uh, sometimes they're forced to because of circumstances. I mean, there's, God, there's, but it is a human condition that we're not all always on our best behavior or we're not always um, have all these pure ideals. And of course, you know, sometimes history is made in a few days, you know, certain events take place. And then other times it's, it's a process. And I'd rather, again, I'd rather have the truth of what we've done as human beings, different cultures, different civilizations, different countries, whatever it is. Don't, don't, don't uh, paint it a way that it wasn't because there's also a lot of good things and a lot of interesting things. Uh, like even what we were talking about, and, and I think that's a problem sometimes with either historians or the powers that be, the ones that put out the official version, that if, whether it was at the time of the discovery or whoever decided they knew better or now certain facts have come to light, and they don't want it out because it would make somebody look bad or it would make them look like liars or, hey, this is the way we said it was, and that's the way it's going to be. And even though you've brought us evidence of whatever that contradicts it, God forbid, we're going to ignore it because that does not fit into the story we put out. Or it's like a chain reaction. Well, if that, if we put that in, then that's going to change the narrative of all these other events, all this other history about who was doing what, who was motivated by what, what happened to these people who did what. It's like, you know, it's like that domino effect. So they're like, forget it. Just leave it as it is. Okay. I have a problem with that. <laughs> I really, really do. And by this, I don't mean, I know there's, there's certain history that it is, I mean, it's accurate. And I'm not saying every bit of historical uh, information that's out there is inaccurate. But sometimes you see where there's, uh, especially now, there's a deliberate effort to lie, disguise it, omit it, um, underplay it, uh, things like that. And it's like, you know, who are you to tell me or to give me a story like a child? You know, why don't you tell me and I can make my own conclusions about what happened at that point in history, whatever, whatever it might be, you know, uh, I don't know. I guess, I, I guess I'm, the, I'm the kind of person that when it comes to history, I'm the purest and to be honest with you, and then there's things that we would never, ever, ever, ever know that they have been, uh, tinkered with. That's a nice way of putting it. We'll never have, we'll never know. You know what that version that was put out maybe for hundreds or even thousands of years, that's not exactly accurate. Or as a matter of fact, it's not even truthful at all. Okay. But, I mean, like he said, a, a lot of ancient civilizations is based on sometimes 
say, a Roman uh, historian that decided to write the story down, uh, either by what he was told firsthand, secondhand. And even then, it's like, okay, good luck on how accurate that is. Or if that's a complete story. Like, they, they when, you know, that they, uh, that for many years, they it was thought that the city of Troy was not real. That it was not a real place. That it was just part of the Odyssey. And it turns out that the city of Troy did actually exist. So, I mean, I think all of this is totally fascinating. And I would urge everyone that when you look at historical content, I mean, really think about how accurate it is or question it and think, man, you know, and ask yourself, would I, do I really want to be spoon fed a make-believe story of us? When I say us, I mean us human beings, you know, even if it's not your direct history, we all live on the planet Earth, last I checked. Do I want to be spoon-fed a version of whatever the case might be? Ancient history, you know, maybe something a thousand, whatever. Or do I really want to know the truth? Again, it's almost like, you know, like, you know, they're holding your hand and they're like, no, no, we're going to tell you what, what it is. And uh, because, and, and again, I'm going to come back. Nobody rewrites or fixes history unless there's a motive for it. You do not alter history, history or historical perspective unless there was something to be gained in, in that version. And by the way, sometimes the only advantage to it is to making another group of people look bad or another person, a historical figure, look bad. Which is like, why? You know, if that group of people was so bad or that person was so bad, let the truth out and let us make determinations and say, that was a real, you know, or what I find, which is that there's different, like in life, history, motivation, things that happen, how they occur, is shades of gray. It's not a black or a white thing. Shades of gray. People motivated by certain things. Group of people motivated by certain things leaders or in some cases kings or emperors or whoever was in charge running running the decisions were motivated sometimes strictly by fear their own greed sometimes it was the lesser of two evils you know it's this is bad or worse you know but and maybe you know maybe a figure that was made to be like a real villain okay if you're told you know what that this person had only these two options and that's and you're like well okay you know that was pretty bad but I didn't realize that that person was had been forced into making a decision along these lines that kind of changes things because I don't know if in that place of that person I would have done something differently but again you got to start out with the truth or the correct version of what happened and then you know you make a decision whatever the case might be I, again for history buffs out there uh, hopefully we're, we're going to be peeling back the onion on a lot of events uh, that I think there's a lot of omissions and like I said and unfortunately there's stuff we're never going to be any none the wiser to it unless we come upon some discovery and then stuff like that those mind benders like that canoe that they found uh, up in northern United States with 
iron in it. Wow. Very interesting. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Rick Osman. Again, uh, I will include links, the credits of the show, but you heard it for those that listen to the podcast. How you can reach him if you want information about his book or any events that he's attending. Uh, he really has a passion for this, and as you can tell, he has a lot of knowledge. Um, and, you know, the will, the will to find out the truth. So, guys, thank you so much. Take care. You're all wonderful. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by root metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.